Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Johnny Burtka is president and CEO of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Uh, before that, he was executive director and acting editor of the American Conservative Magazine. Uh, his writings have appeared in many places, including First Things, uh, The Washington Post, uh, American Mind. Of the Washington Post, he has helped uh, democracy not die in darkness, uh, and in the Intercollegiate Review. Uh, welcome, Johnny. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Now, you, I see a lot of writing that you're do doing there. Uh, you don't have much writing, time for writing right now, do you? You're kind of busy, aren't you? I'm incredibly busy, yeah, running ISI. We've got about 150 lectures, seminars, debates, conferences that we do on and off campuses every year. So I, writing is actually my probably my first love, but I don't have as quite as much time for it now as I did in the past. Let, let me ask, what was ISI created to do long ago? God, what was that? About, about, about 60 years ago now? Almost 70. So it was 1953. Uh, it was founded by Frank Chodorov, who is a libertarian uh, journalist. Uh, William F. Buckley Jr. was the first president. So really it was focused on the problems in higher education. Uh, and the goal was really to counter the intercollegiate uh, uh, society of socialists uh, and, and offer an alternative. At the time, it was the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists. Uh, but there was actually some, some sharp and very pointed criticism from Russell Kirk when he was invited to join ISI's board. He said, uh, individualism uh, uh, ends in anarchy. It's a hideous solitude. And uh, the first issue of ISI's publication uh, shocked his conscience. And so that sort of tension between kind of the, the individualists and the traditionalists was sort of present at the genesis of ISI and, um, and, and Kirkian traditionalism was sort of incorporated in and then ISI actually changed its name to the Intercollegiate Studies Institute to reflect sort of a broader focus on Western civilization. Good. What do you see today as the primary mission. We'll, we'll get into some of the programs you do, but if, if you were to consolidate those into uh, just a few general goals, what, what would those be? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think ultimately what we're trying to do is capture the imagination of a rising uh, generation focused on, on the best students really at top schools. But when I say capture the imagination, I think they're, you know, students are often trapped in um, you know, the political conversations and debates of their day. Th these are being mediated through TikTok or, or other platforms like Twitter. And so for 
a student, they don't always have the sort of the deep historical, theological, literary roots to really understand what's going on. And so I think an ISI sort of at its finest is really taking um, the best professors. And I think we, many of us can think back to those one or two professors who really changed the trajectory of our life. And we're giving the students an opportunity to sit back and spend a weekend studying Dante or spend a weekend studying Aristotle, Shakespeare, and really reignite sort of the, the moral sort of, you know, imagination in, in young students. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. You, you still, you, you mentioned a moment ago, Western civilization, you still raise the banner of Western civilization, even in this woke sure. era. So, so it's, it's not a totally lost cause, Johnny? I don't think so. I, I, and the reason I say that is because, you know, I, I find ISI students today hungering for the content, the seminars that we're doing, even more than when I, you know, was here and involved about 10 years ago. I mean, it really is. The, the, the darker things have gotten on their campus, the more serious they are and hungry they are to learn. So, you know, I'm actually, you know, I, I think things in our wider culture might probably going to get worse before they get better. But when I think of, you know, the ISI students and faculty that I work with, I'm more of an optimist than a, a pessimist. Well, you, I mean, you have to be as a leader. Uh, sure. I mean, or, or, or maybe, maybe if you're a pessimist, you say, well, maybe I'm a pessimist, but I'm going to go down fighting. You know? That's right. I mean, yeah. it really, it doesn't matter, right? Whether, whether we see, uh, <laughs> you know, the odds against us, you, you got to keep, keep fighting for, for what's right. Now, there are ISI chapters across the country. How do college students find out about them? Mm -hmm. They would find out in, in a few different ways. Um, our most sort of trusted source of referrals comes from our faculty network. So we have about 4,000 affiliated faculty members. About 500 of those actually uh, receive scholarships through ISI during their graduate studies through our Weaver uh, uh fellowship program, which we still give out 15 Weaver fellowships a year. So if you're in grad school listening to this, uh, you should apply this fall and winter uh, for a Weaver fellowship program. If you're studying, um, you know, political theory or, you know, history, um, it's, it's the program for you to apply to. So, you know, our faculty recommend a lot of students. We send out um, representatives to campuses around the country to help just recruit students. Uh, and then we do national conferences, uh, like we just hosted our American Economic Forum in D.C., which which is a recruiting mechanism as well to get students plugged into ISI. In their in their work, for instance, in their in their promotion of Western Civ, do they do they take some local heat? Have there been cases? I mean, my my experience has been that if you are forthright and upfront about your convictions on Western Civ or whatever, that the, the intimidation doesn't really happen. Mm -hmm. What do what, what the, the local chapters feel from the campuses they occupy? Any hostility? Uh, yeah. So I think, you know, on, the, on a week-to-week -week basis, it's, it's, it's mostly quite peaceful. You know, they're not going to interrupt a group of students reading Russell Kirk's Roots of American Order and, and eating pizza. Um, however, I, I just hired a um, young student to be a program officer who graduated from Boston College. And his ISI chapter there, in addition to their reading groups, 
would host um, bigger, more broader campus lectures. And he had something like 10 speakers uh, that he invited to campus rejected by just in a year, his senior year rejected by the, uh, the administration. And one of the speakers that he did have, and I'm actually, uh, I can't recall the, the name of the speaker, but he had um, uh, basically, he had students protesting to the extent where they were stomping on the ceiling of the classroom above him. They were pounding on the windows and they, they basically had to have a police escort for the speaker to, to address, you know, a small group of probably 50 or 60 students in a lecture. So this is at Boston College. So, uh, you know, it really depends on the atmosphere in the campus that you're on in particular. Yeah, I, I hope he wasn't too, I mean, it's hard not to, but I hope he wasn't too daunted by the resistance that it only, you know, what we need is to, to toughen the resolve. That's right. right. In, in the face of this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Um, You've seen this growth in classical education happening at the secondary level. These uh, high schools opening, parents pulling their kids out of the public schools, and, and the enrollments are swelling in those classical education schools. Are you feeling uh, any rising interest in ISI programs as we're seeing more and more kids come out of those kinds of schools? I, I definitely think so. And and I think it's a bit of a, you know, a, a sea change from 10, you know, I guess it was probably 14 years ago now that I was a freshman in college, which is hard to believe, uh, you know, but when I came into Hillsdale where I studied, you know, I was a public school kid, a townie, you know, so I, I really didn't even know what the great books was. Uh, and um, I would say at that time, that was probably about half of Hillsdale College was just local, regional Michigan kids like me kind of discovering the great books for the first time. Now, I think if you if you go to Hillsdale, it's a very different situation where most of the people they're admitting, you know, have have read at a pretty serious level, thanks to classical Christian education, the great books, and they're sort of entering at a, a little bit of a higher level of comprehension. And so we're definitely noticing that effect, especially with ISI students from you know, the Grove Cities, Thomas Aquinas type schools. Um, yeah, but but I would say there still is a fair number of ISI students at state schools, University of Alabama, for example, um, where they're probably engaging with the great books, I would I would I would assume more or less for the first time. Yeah. You co-authored a piece recently in National Review. Uh, summarizing a forum, and you mentioned it a moment ago, the forum ISI hosted. What was the substance of, of that forum and why that topic? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the forum was sort of designed to be a foil to the World Economic Forum. Uh, we wanted to host a conference on economics and political economy uh, that took the American interest in, in American families, kind of in American companies and entrepreneurs, for that matter, sort of at the heart of, of, of political economy. And so the conference was really designed to, uh, you know, you've seen, especially uh, since the the uh, Trump came down the escalator, sort of heated debates among conservatives and libertarians and nationalists and post-liberals about uh, what kind of economic policy we should have, whether or not fusionism has failed. And uh, it's sort of my view that a lot of those debates are very much at the theoretical level, which is in one sense understandable, 
but that it might be a little bit more productive if we could get much more particular and kind of bring together some of those different camps to hash out, you know, what, what their theory means kind of in practice. And my suspicion is that in practice, you could, you could reach more of a consensus than you might be able to in theory. And so, you know, we took a look at issues ranging from, you know, trade and industrial policy to finance, environmental conservation, immigration and political economy, inflation, and, you know, brought together classical liberals and nationalists and post-liberals and hashed it out. I want to come back to that particular forum and, and what you saw there. But but first, the the old 1950s, the old fusionism that, that we had there, sort of an uneasy truce between the libertarians, more social, religious conservatives, and that it actually, in, in many ways, it, it worked. Uh, united against communism and statism. But today, it, it seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong, that ISI wants to facilitate uh, a new a new kind of fusionism to get past some of the tensions between the different brands of conservatism that may be harming conservatism politically generally. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that an accurate characterization of, of what you see one of the things ISI doing at the present time? Sure. And I think you could probably make a distinction. You know, we have sort of the programs that I described earlier, a little more focused on Western civilization, kind of more backward looking towards, you know, going back to the fountains to kind of renew yeah. our, our sort of intellectual understanding. And then really, you know, through the work of our journal, Modern Age, uh, and through some of the conferences we're doing for for alumni and in sort of our broader, especially journalistic community, um, we you know we want to position ISI to be an intellectual driver shaping conversations and debates on the right, and you know that's been a hallmark of ISI for seventy years. And you know I think we can hopefully not just you know forever argue back and forth, but kind of maybe come together and sketch an outline of sort of where we think the right should go from here. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, you implied something of a generational divide between older and younger conservatives. It sort of, sort of came clear in the commerce, but I'm sure you see it generally as well. What are some of the differences you see in, in young, young conservatives versus old conservatives? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it young conservatives are more comfortable using state power to pursue conservative ends, uh, substantial ends. And I think there are um, probably several reasons for that. I think that the chief among them, though, and we, we see this more, we see differences, you know, our students really do kind of span the spectrum. We honestly see it more at our Ivy League campuses than we do at state schools. Um, 
students at state schools tend to be more kind of traditional Reagan conservatives. We're at the Ivy Leagues. They're more drawn towards integralism or post-liberalism. And I think the real the reason is because at, at the Ivy League schools, they really kind of live under a regime uh, that has a, a pretty radical leftist, you know, really even sort of a religious identity that that dominates public square, the public square. So I think a lot of those students are saying to themselves, well, you know, this whole idea of neutrality, um, you know, is that really even a thing? You know, that was that seems to them more like a, the vehicle by which progressivism came to dominate than a real status quo that could be recovered. So I think they start to think, well, what what if, if we were in charge instead of they were in charge, what would our sort of orthodoxy look like? And I, and I think that kind of exercise played out on their campuses is to some extent, you know, driving them to think of, you know, the left is always pursuing, you know, their, their ends. You just saw the big climate bill that went through Congress. I mean, they're always, you know, passing things to promote their ends. And so I think younger conservatives are saying, you know, what if we did that? And, you know, maybe they're looking to Florida and they're seeing someone like Governor DeSantis start to pursue some of those substantive ends and, you know, seeing that, wow, it's actually quite popular with a lot of people. So what if we kind of expanded that lesson a little bit larger? What are the little platoon seminars? Yeah, so those are, um, we do about 20 to 25 of those a year. Uh, Those are day-long seminars where we bring together about 15 to 20 students from, from different campuses, but they're regionally focused. So, you know, one that we did recently was in Grand Rapids, and we had students from Notre Dame, Hillsdale, Calvin, and Hope come together um, for about eight hours. You know, meals are provided and do a lot of advanced reading. And, you know, we do everything from Machiavelli's The Prince to Pilgrim's Progress to the Southern Agrarians uh, to the Nicomachean Ethics. So it's really deep dives for a day on core texts in Western civilization. I actually think that th- this is a very good thing for young conservatives to do because, you know, young liberals, young progressives, again, they grow up in that environment that is all progressive and it makes them a little complacent. And what, what, I, what I used to tell conservative students or Republicans who'd come to, to me and talk, I'd say, well, now have you read Marx? And they, they sort of raised their eyebrows. And I said, you got to read their stuff so that you know it better than they know it. And what I found is that conservatives sort of have an advantage over progressive students because they're in a bit of an adversarial position, which makes them work a little harder. You know, they, they do their homework on ideology a little more rigorously and they tend to win the debates when they're... I've seen one or two conservative students really outdo a room full of progressives simply because it looked like they'd done their homework a little better. Is this, is this one of ISI's mission? I am arming... We are arming young conservatives with the materials that enable them to, to, to win the debate. And part of that is knowing progressivism through and through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, uh, 
uh, a, a very good point, an astute point. Um, you know, progressivism really is in the water, and so it's it's easy um, to be a, a a lazy progressive, probably even at the highest levels of um, cultural political power. And so, you know, one of the things we did, one of our our more popular conferences, um, was it a, a sort of a, a debate oriented conference where you are sort of reading core, you know, core primary texts, and you don't get to pick what side of the debate you're on. You're sort of forced into a camp, and then you have to do parliamentary style debate, you know, arguing your position. So that that is certainly the um, the intellectual and sort of the moral kind of, uh, you know, character that we're, we're seeking to instill in our students. One of the things I like about the ASI work is that you really go against the tendency, progressive tendency, to be so presentist in the curriculum so that students take all these courses in, in current events, current affairs, current social problems that, you know, 10 years from now, often these problems will be, will be obsolete. They just don't apply. You are hitting kids with works that last the centuries, right? Mm -hmm. The reading Aristotle is not going to go away. Is this, it is kind of a, 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 an antiquarian tendency. Is, is that explicit or you're just, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, to some extent, sure. One of our actually youngest board members, uh, was a recent graduate of Harvard, and he was a computer science major. And, uh, you know, everything that he was doing was very technical and or career-oriented in nature. He gravitated to ISI, went to actually 17 conferences as an undergraduate, uh, because it was the only spot where he could encounter the permanent things. So I think that is certainly an intentional component of our curriculum, it's, I would say it's not the only component. There are some uh, areas of contemporary focus. We have a debate series on campus that does every, you know, focuses on everything from immigration policy to trade policy to other sort of areas of uh, debate around contemporary issues. And then we also do have uh, kind of a new focus on technology and philosophy in particular. Uh, and so we'll have a conference coming up in Dallas that's actually a mix of theorists, you know, people like uh, Peter Kreeft, uh, but also practitioners. Michael Gibson, who was with, um, used, used to be with the Teal Fellowship, Mary Harrington. Um, so so we're, we're, we do have, a, a, I would say, a blend of kind of great books and great ideas and contemporary issues. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're speaking at the National Conservative Meeting uh, in Miami next month. We're taping right now in, in August. Where, where is the national conservative movement at the present time? I went to the first meeting. It was about five years ago in D.C. A lot of energy uh, around that meeting. An interesting new thing. It was controversial, of course. But what, where do you see it at, at now five years in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a movement that is you know, broadly part of what might be called the new right. Uh, but I think it's perhaps distinct from some of the schools of, of post-liberal thought or anti-liberal thought on the new right in the sense that it's, ac it's actually trying to uh, articulate a vision for conservatism that, you know, is certainly is, is more 
nationalistic than perhaps the the fusionism that pre preceded it, but but is also one that that says that you know the American tradition wasn't just a liberal tradition from its roots. It's it's more than Lockean liberalism. There's actually a, a that that might be a component of the American tradition, but there's also a conservative tradition going back to the founding uh, that you can find largely in the work of, you know, the Federalist Party and statesmen like Washington and Hamilton and Adams, uh, Lincoln, and that that tradition um, is is worth recovering and worth defending. And I, I would say another theme that I, I think, you know, there's there's a quite a diverse group of, of people and, and ideological a mix, you know, speaking at the conference. But I think one common theme across everyone is that there should be a more robust role for religion in public life in America and in the West. And so you have Catholics, Protestants, and Jews there, um, largely, I think, making that case. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's hard to avoid electoral politics these days, but does ISI have a mission to reach politicians, to educate them in the intellectual and cultural backgrounds of our country, or maybe maybe staffers at least uh, up there in Congress? Do do you have any educational program for the politicians? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the short answer is uh, not directly, although many politicians, you know, people like. Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley had been involved in some capacity with ISI programs, particularly the journalism program when they were in college. So we mm-hmm. do have a lot of students go on into politics. Uh, we have programs for mid-career professionals and in, in many of those that participate are staffers, you know, on the Hill. Um, yeah, I think what, w- you know, one effort that, that we are thinking about is, uh, some of the cultural agencies of the federal government, the NEA, the NEH, uh, really kind of developing a concrete plan, uh, a, you know, staffing plan so that that genuinely good, you know, conservative scholars um, can can serve in those roles of leadership in a future uh, conservative administration. Because, as you know, many academics know, so many of the incentives uh, for scholars, for artists, are really shaped by the grants that they're able to get from those institutions. And uh, despite Congress's best efforts uh, and the best efforts of conservatives, uh, they've never been able to abolish or, or dismantle those institutions. The money, it's about a, it's about a billion dollars a year between the three or four different cultural agencies. And those are mostly flowing not only to left of center causes, but really to radical perverse, anti-American projects that, that would make, honestly, most liberals uh, blush if they really knew what was being funded. So I think there's an opportunity for us and probably for groups like First Things, you know, to, to really put forward a vision for how we might use those institutions to, um, if not promote conservative ends, at least ones that would help to sort of just generally strengthen the fabric of our republic. Yeah, when I, when I was at the National Endowment for the Arts in 03 to 05, Dana Joya, the chairman, created a program called The Big Read, which was helping local libraries and communities uh, select a few books that the community would read. And they were, they were great books, right? Mm-hmm. They were classics. Uh, this was back, back in, in 05, 06. 
if you look at that list today, Johnny, the books that are chosen, oh brother, what you just said about the bizarre, right? And the, the perverse, total, a total abandonment of that program, what that program was supposed to be about. And unfortunately, Donald Trump's NEA didn't, uh, didn't stop it. Uh, oh, although, you remember Donald Trump's Warsaw speech and the Mount Rushmore speech? Th- those speeches could have been written by ISI staff. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> many. Uh, yeah, I had some friends, I think, that were involved in the, the, the speech writing process for those. But yeah, those were, were wonderful speeches. Good, good. You know, let me ask you a personal question as, as we wrap up. Uh, what you, you said that you were a public school kid. You weren't a great books kid. You go into Hillsdale. What led you? into this world of civilization when you were when you were young what what why didn't you just go to hillsdale and 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 do political science and go to law school huh yeah that's a great question i mean i I think a lot of it is just you know i i always had a love of learning i always had uh you know intellectual curiosity so i you know uh, when I when I got when I first got to college, my advisor told me, "Don't um, you know? Don't think about your career or your even your major. Just take classes that you love, that you find interesting, and kind of whatever majors you cobble together, uh, that'll be good enough." So I was a French and Christian studies double major. Uh, went to grad school, studied theology, and then you know, really through you know friendships and mentorships, got plugged into ISI. Um, so yeah, I was I, I always interested. I mean, I'm I'm of course very interested in politics, but I also kind of like taking one step back and sort of really examining the the intellectual, philosophical kind of roots of of, of politics. And the ISI was really the the perfect home for that. You you did you imply earlier that the for America to undergo a cultural educational renewal that the religious dimension must be raised in the culture and in the schools? It, I mean, I think it has to be. Uh, really, there's no way... Uh, you know, I was talking with a friend the other day and, you know, kind of wondering, you know, is there a point in which we see backlash to sort of the dominant kind of woke ideologies in our culture, you know, would it even be possible, for example, to, to sort of revert back to where America was kind of circa 2005 and kind of just call it good. And we sort of all get together. And um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think, you know, maybe you could say, okay, someone like Glenn Youngkin's victory in Virginia shows that there's a lot of kind of normie, Parents that like they don't they want their kids to get good jobs to be you know to excel but they don't want them learning kind of all this wacky stuff so in that sense yeah maybe there is a little bit of hope to kind of rein things back a bit but ultimately I think it's kind of without reestablishing the religious foundations you're kind of just you know pushing the ball up the hill and it's going to roll right back down if there's not not just a philosophical grounding, but a moral grounding in, in religious obligations and, and in the liturgical cult that is really the heart of the religious community. The, the organization is the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Institute. It's isi.org. 
org for for parents out there who who've got kids going into schools who are turned off by the current humanities programs emphasis on identity politics and so on there may be on campus an alternative to those departments so that your kids don't pass through their college years without that exposure to the great book. So look up on ISI.org, see what might be happening on, on the campuses uh, of, of your children's schools. Johnny Burkett, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.